us. Now, King Herod heard of him, that's a reference to Jesus, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, it is Elijah, and others said, it is the prophet, or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, this is John, whom I beheaded, he has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and a holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Then an opportune day came when Herod on his birthday gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers, and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias, daughter herself, came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Yet, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took away the corpse and laid it in a tomb. And Father, we humbly pause and just pray for the grace of your Holy Spirit to understand this portion of your word in every way that you intend for us to receive from it things that you want to say to us from this portion of your living and holy and inspired word. So, Lord, give us a prepared heart, a receptive mind, that we might be able to comprehend these scriptures. And we ask, Lord, that by your Spirit's ministry now, as an act of worship, that you would help us to hear what it is that you're saying to us and that we would be responsive to your word as well. So, Lord, speak now through what your Spirit has already spoken in these written words. And we ask this expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, bravely speaking the truth, as well as at times taking a courageous stand for what the truth says, can and will do, at times produce consequences in our lives. Let me say in connection to that, I also think it's important to realize that refusing to respond to the truth, if you're on the other side of that equation, and hearing the truth and knowing the truth, but refusing to respond to the truth, 
that also does bring consequences. Now, that being said, speaking the truth courageously, standing for the truth courageously, as well as being receptive and responding to the truth are always the right thing to do. Even though they bring consequences, it is always the right thing to do. And that is really what we see transpiring in our text today. Both sides of that equation, bravely speaking the truth, bearing the consequences for it, as well as refusing to respond to the truth and bearing the consequences as well. At this point in our ministry of Jesus that we've been looking at, we are now about one year-ish or so prior to Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. So we're about two years into the public ministry of Jesus at this point. And as we have been watching over the last few years, Jesus has been traveling around preaching about the kingdom of God, teaching people the ways of God's kingdom. He's done many mighty miracles. He has healed numerous people. He has powerfully cast out demons from the lives of people who are being influenced by demonic spirits. And he has changed many, many lives. In connection to that, in order to further expand the reach of his ministry, as we just saw even recently in Mark 6, on another occasion, Jesus empowered his disciples with his very supernatural power and sent them forth as an extension of his work and of his ministry to reach even more people. And they themselves went out. And the Bible tells us that they also preached that people should repent and that they should turn to God as well as they themselves were given power by the Spirit of God to heal lives, to cast demons out of people, and many more lives were transformed. And all over the land of Israel, testimonies of lives being powerfully influenced by our Lord Jesus Christ are circulating all around the land of Israel, which is why we now read in our text, if you look with me back again in verse 14, in light of that powerful ministry of Jesus and its popularity, verse 14 says, now King Herod himself heard of him, heard of Jesus, for his name had become well known. So notice at this point, even powerful political figures within the society were hearing about our Lord Jesus Christ, the lives that he was changing, and it tells us there in verse 14, for Jesus' name had become well known. And again, the reason is because Many people were speaking about Jesus. They were sharing the testimony of their lives being changed. And I love the description here the Holy Spirit gives to us that Jesus' name had become well known. What a beautiful picture that is, a great description of the beautiful outcome of healthy ministry, of proper ministry, of clearly the most genuine form of spirit-led ministry that the person of Jesus was the central focus of everyone. That the byproduct of a healthy, fruitful ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ was not the name of a human servant becoming well-known. It was not people talking about how certain disciples were such great preachers about Jesus Christ. 
It was not any particular ministry or church per se, and the name of that church becoming very well known. The Bible makes it very clear to us that all the ministry work that was happening, that the end result was everyone talking about Jesus, that people were becoming more acquainted with the Lord. They were enthusiastic about the Lord, about his power and his love and his person, and everyone's focus and attention was directed upon the Lord. And I think that we shouldn't dismiss this. The Holy Spirit puts that there in front of us, and it's a great lesson that we would always endeavor to see that same outcome with the work of ministry. That focus and attention would always end up upon the Lord Jesus himself. In fact, that we would seek to be intentional. And I would even go so far as to even say purposefully focused. That we do the work of the Lord however we are serving. That we would be keeping attention upon Jesus. And that we would try to do everything we can to make the focus be upon the Lord and even diminish wrong attention being drawn to ourselves or directed upon any person and that we would actually be intentional that we want to see the focus the attention stay on the lord remain on the lord and that that attention would not be drawn to us or to any person or even any church per se that is being used by the Lord in any way. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us that God is purposely seeking to work through human instruments and at times will even use the weak things of the world, you know, the unassuming people of the world, that God works purposely through human instruments in a manner, 1 Corinthians 1 says, so that no flesh should glory in God's presence, but that all who glory would glory in the Lord. That is that they'd be celebrating the Lord. You know, I think it is something that we need to be very sensitive to. And oftentimes, whether it be unconsciously or consciously, a, a very carnal, fleshly thing that can happen in the Lord's work among churches is, is people begin to enjoy the attention that's drawn to themselves. And this is a very, very, not only unhealthy, but extremely dishonoring thing in the kingdom of God, that attention will be drawn to a servant or even to a ministry per se, and that there's more focus on the name of that or the knowledge of that or this person or talking about some church or talking about some ministry rather than attention and glory and honor being upon the Lord. When we serve the Lord, God help us to try and be sensitive that as we're seeking the Lord and serving the Lord and even worshiping the Lord, that we're purposely being conscious of, Lord, help us not to draw attention to ourselves. Help us not to do things where glory is being given to us or focus comes upon us. You know, what I read in John chapter 16 is that Jesus himself said, when the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of truth, is at work, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will glorify me. That's what Jesus said, as God in the flesh. He said, that's the ministry of the Spirit to bring glory and attention to Jesus. Well, the name of Jesus had become so well known, verse 14 tells us, notice that now even politicians, political figures, we're hearing about him. Verse 14 says, now King Herod himself heard about Jesus. Now, in the Bible, we find numerous Herods mentioned, particularly in the New Testament. This whole family, the Herod family, they were a mess. 
They were a very corrupt family historically. This Herod mentioned here in verse 14, we know is Herod Antipas, who would be son of Herod the Great. And when Herod the Great died, we know historically he divided the rulership of different territories amongst his few sons. Herod Antipas was one of the sons, and he became ruler over Galilee in the northern region, and he reigned like a king in that particular region. Now, Herod, hearing about Jesus' powerful ministry, we're told, verse 14, look what he says. As he heard, he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work at him. So because of some very bad choices, as we read about in our passage this morning, some very past bad choices that led to bad experiences, which were due to Herod rejecting the truth that was convicting his own conscience, he now wrongly concludes who the Lord Jesus Christ is when he hears report about him circulating in Israel. Herod's conclusion, notice, was he heard of Jesus and he said, no, this is John the Baptist resurrected. He's come back from the dead. And this is why these powerful things are happening in that man's life who's going around causing a stir in Israel. Now, John the Baptist indeed had a very powerful ministry. He was empowered by God. He was sent by God, remember, to be the forerunner or the one who went before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah and Savior, and he was sent to prepare the way of the Lord. And we've seen John the Baptist's ministry, how he preached repentance, saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. John orchestrated a unique water baptism. It wasn't Christian baptism, but it was a baptism of repentance to indicate that you were turning from your sin and that you were looking in expectancy for the coming of Christ and that you believed that the Messiah was coming and that the way of the Lord was being prepared for him to be brought as the Savior. And though John the Baptist did operate in a powerful way in his proclamation of truth, and he was used very clearly with supernatural power, and many lives were transformed as well under John the Baptist's ministry, the Bible tells us in John chapter 10, particularly verse 41, that though John spoke everything that was true about Jesus, it says in John 10, 41, that John never did a sign or a miracle. In other words, John's ministry was characterized by powerfully speaking truth about our Lord Jesus Christ. Many lives were changed and transformed, but John, the Bible says, he never did a miracle. He never did one sign in any of his ministry. Yet it was evident that the Spirit of God was upon him and he had done powerful things. And Herod now, because of his own experiences with him, is therefore speculating, because he remembers the power of John's ministry. He's now speculating, and we'll see because of a real guilty conscience, this is John the Baptist. God, God's raised him back from the dead, and that's why he's going around doing these powerful things once again. Now, verse 15, we see that others were saying other things as they heard report about Jesus and his life and ministry. Others said, it is Elijah. So some concluded, this is Elijah the prophet. And again, as we know from the Old Testament, Elijah the prophet's ministry was characterized, was it not, by great power. God was using him to do miracles 
God used Elijah the prophet to perform a few healings. He even used Eliza at one point, remember, to resuscitate someone and bring them back from the dead. And a life was raised back from the dead. Elijah then, remember, after all these powerful works that he was doing, was then caught up in a whirlwind, and it says kind of instantaneously he disappeared and was brought up to heaven. And Malachi chapter 4 also tells us that before the coming of the day of the Lord, that Elijah would come first to prepare the way. So some people were concluding when they were hearing about Jesus, hey, this is Elijah. He's come back from when he went up in that cloud, and that's why this powerful work is happening among. Others were saying, verse 15, of Jesus, no, this is, notice, and it should be capitalized in your Bible, this is the prophet, the prophet, which is a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 18, where there God said to Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among the brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Again, speaking of the coming of Christ, coming of the Messiah and the Savior, God referenced him saying to Moses, I'm going to send one who is a prophet like unto yourself as a prophetic word about Jesus. So some said, this is that prophet from Deuteronomy 18, who predicted, God said, that would be sent. And others were just saying, no, he's just like one of the prophets. In other words, like another Isaiah. This is another Jeremiah. This is another Daniel. This is a new prophet. Jesus is just another new prophet who has been sent to us, and that's why he's going around speaking these things. Now, take notice in our verse there, people will always have different opinions about Jesus. There's nothing new under the sun. People always have different human opinions about Jesus, but listen, folks, the only truth about who Jesus really is comes from the Word of God. Not from any church tradition, not from people's viewpoints about who Jesus is. This is how we come to a proper conclusion about who Jesus of Nazareth is and was. And this book tells us that he is the Son of God, that he is the second person of the eternal triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, that Jesus left the eternal throne of God in heaven, and he added humanity unto his deity to come into this earth because he was miraculously conceived in the womb of a virgin woman that he might be fully God and fully human simultaneously at the exact same time to enter into this world as a human being, to live a sinless life, and then to substitutionally die on the cross, being punished for our sins in humanity, the one God and mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins and then powerfully rose out from among the dead and has ascended back into heaven that he might defeat the powers of sin and death and Satan and hell on our behalf to now reign as the Lord of all and to one day return back to this earth to rule and reign in righteousness as the King of Kings. That's what the Bible says about Jesus. Not what humanity says about Jesus. Not what this group or that group says about Jesus. We want the truth of God's word, not the opinions of humanity about who Jesus is. And the truth of God's word is very clear about him. So people were speculating different things, 
But again, verse 16 takes us back to the conclusion of Herod saying, but when Herod heard, even though different people were sharing ideas, he said, it's almost as if he's reemphasizing, this is John whom I beheaded and he has been raised from the dead, exclamation point. And the language there implies that this was something it seems that John kept saying repeatedly. It's in the imperative sense that he just kept repeatedly, continuously saying, no, I'm telling you, this is John the Baptist who I beheaded and he's raised back from the dead now. Like a worried man, Herod kept repeating this in fearful concern. And here we are instructed in verse 16 from the Holy Spirit, the obvious reason that Herod kept speculating and coming to this conclusion because Herod had brutally murdered, the Bible tells us right there, he had actually beheaded, decapitated John the Baptist. And now his conscience is extremely guilty over that. And he, like any human being, is struggling under the weight of his own guilty conscience, and he can't escape all of the consequential effects symptomatically of having a very guilty conscience and the regret and the shame and the guilt over this past error of murdering John the Baptist, who was an innocent man. And he's struggling under the plague and the weight of his guilty conscience and he's terrified that this powerful man he's hearing about is John back to get him. He's back to haunt him. He was probably having bad dreams of the bloody head of John on the platter and, and just remembering this day when he did this horrible thing, this heinous act in stupidity and selfishness, and his conscience is plaguing him. And he's struggling under the weight of it. So John kept saying again and again, no, I'm telling you, this is John that I beheaded, and, and now he's back from the dead. God's got him haunting me, and he's back to get me, and he's wandering around Israel. Now, I want you to notice the symptoms of a guilty conscience included things like extreme anxiety, a very panicky temperance within a person. You know, the book of Proverbs tells us that the wicked flee when no one's even pursuing. And one of the consequences of a very guilty conscience is often it will cause a person to struggle with anxiety and panic because they're always wondering, when's it going to catch up to me? When's it going to catch up to me? When's it going to catch up to me? And so there's this struggle with anxiety and this almost panicky temperance that, that John is struggling with where he feels like it's always going to get him. It's always going to catch up to him. When's event, when am I eventually going to get caught? And so his guilty conscience is making him kind of in this fearful way. He's struggling with insecurity. There's errors in his reasoning. He's drawing wrong conclusions. He's filled with regret and misery and distraction. And these are very common symptomatic effects of a guilty conscience. Look, the Bible is very clear to us that God has created every human being with a good working conscience from our birth. And our conscience is basically that internal moral compass that God creates us with as human beings that dwells within the inner part of our life. And our conscience is something that helps us assess right and wrong. And it's like an internal moral compass or an internal, car, uh, internal moral judge 
that evaluates matters and life and decisions and situations, and it speaks to us about this is right and that is wrong. The Bible even tells us that God's written his law on the conscience of humanity just in a general sense. There's a obvious awareness within every human being from an early start that this is wrong and this is right, and yet the reality is this, even though our conscience testifies to us, our conscience is something that can be ignored. It's even something that can be rebelled against and refused in selfish error, but here's the reality. When we violate our conscience, it will punish us. It will punish us with a sense of tremendous feelings of guilt and shame and the weight and symptoms of a guilty conscience undealt with can be debilitating. It can probably be one of the most suffocating experiences in a human being's life when they have a guilty conscience that has never been dealt with and it is squeezing down upon them and it will drastically influence the life of a person in a very negative way, in a very detrimental way. Horrible symptomatic consequences. I personally believe there are probably human beings walking around on this earth that people are thinking they have a mental issue, they have an emotional issue, and the reality is they may have a spiritual issue of a very guilty conscience potentially about something, and it's just being completely misdiagnosed. Because guilt is suffocating. And shame and misery and regret can cause people to behave in very peculiar ways. But here's the good news, folks. The Bible tells us there's a solution to be freed from a guilty conscience so that it doesn't have to slowly wear down and destroy a person within. And that only solution is turning to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior, who can forgive all sin. No matter what that sin may be, and no matter how great the amount of that sin may be, or how repetitious or deep that stain of sin may be, the Bible tells us that Jesus can forgive and he can eliminate that guilt. He can remove it from our lives. 1 John 1.9 tells us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because of what Jesus did so, efficient, so sufficiently, God and Jesus himself, the Father, the Son, and through the work of his Spirit, has a just basis, a totally just basis, to faithfully forgive all sin, and on top of that, to cleanse it from our lives, to erase it from us, to eradicate the guilt, to take away the shame, to cleanse us from it so that it doesn't plague us with tremendous guilt. Now, sadly, here we see the influence, as I said, of a undealt with guilty conscience left unresolved. And what's it doing? It's plaguing Herod, right? It is plaguing this man in a tremendous way. Now, verse 17, down through the remainder of our chapter, gives us a descriptive narrative of what transpired the actual events that led to this guilty conscience in Herod's life. Look with me in verse 17. It says, For Herod, we're going back now in time, himself had sent and laid hold of John, and he had bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, notice the Holy Spirit makes, makes it evident, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. So notice the Bible says he might have married her in adultery and calling her his wife, but from God's perspective, he said, no, 
that's still his brother Philip's wife. <laughs> God's always very clear. He has no problem telling the truth. For he had married her because, verse 18, here's the problem, John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So what began the problem was John did what? He boldly confronted Herod regarding his immoral and sinful conduct, regarding Herod's personal life, and regarding his marriage. Sadly, this political leader, Herod, who was a man of great power, felt apparently that moral boundaries could be violated without any consequence. At some point, he had entered into an adulterous relationship with a woman who was one of his own family members. The Bible tells us here that Herod becomes not only unfaithful to his own wife, but he disrespects the marriage of his own brother Philip by beginning to engage in a romantic relationship with his sister-in-law in some way, and as the two of them pursued their own selfish, perverse lusts, they engage in adulterous relationship, which ultimately results in Herod divorcing his current wife and Herodias apparently divorcing Philip and the two of them then ending up entering into a second marriage in an adulterous way. Now, understand, for Herodias, this also was an upgrade in her social and economic status as well. So for her, this was also an opportunity to kind of climb the social economic ladder. Now, not only is all of this immoral, it is sick, gross, and twisted. <laughs> you want to talk about not only utterly selfish, you're on top of that ruining an entire family, tearing a family apart. Now, being a powerful and influential leader with authority ruling over people and ruling over society, apparently Herod assumed, as some do, that they don't need to answer for their moral actions. I'm a leader. I have authority. I'll wash my hands of this. I'll get people to take care of this. I tell people what to do. I don't have to answer for my actions. I don't have to be held accountable. It's almost as if he felt entitled to be excused from his own immoral conduct and his sinful and wrong behavior. Yet here's the reality, folks. God, who is the true king and the king of kings, the Bible tells us that God shows partiality to no man. In other words, God is not impressed with any human being. And God does not change the standards or grant special exceptions to any person because God is a just God. And God, therefore, holds every human being accountable to the same standard of right and wrong, of what is true and what is error, what is righteous and unrighteous. And John, as a man of God, knowing his God as a faithful messenger of God and his word, knows that reality is true. And so, therefore, John knows the important thing is to speak the truth. And apparently, John was not intimidated by Herod's title or Herod's position, because verse 18 tells us that John said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. In other words, John was not impressed with who Herod was any more than any other human being walking around society, and John called him out. He said, Herod, that's adultery. What you're doing is wrong. You, you, you don't have a right to do that. That is immoral. 
that is sick and twisted. It violates God's law. It's incestuous. She's a member of your own family. And what you're doing, it's sin. It's wrong. And Herod confronted him and her for what they were doing as wrong and sinful, violating the word of God. And boy, what a great example of a faithful servant of God who chooses to honor God and have God's approval rather than have the approval of human beings. And he just speaks the truth with no intimidation, no special treatment. He speaks the truth boldly to Herod. Now, obviously, this caused conviction in Herod and Herodias's heart. And on top of it, it disturbed them just a tad bit, bothered them a little bit, angered them, because it caused them shame and embarrassment even in their public image. Again, I don't sense that John was just saying this quietly. John wasn't kind of known to just say things quietly. He was kind of more known to say things publicly at the Jordan River and call people out, and he just would speak truth very, very forthright in regards to what it was saying. And so now he's causing them to wrestle with their own conscience. He's pointed out error in their lives. He's challenging to some degree their public image and their position. And look, if people don't want to hear the truth, and more than that, if they don't want to repent of error, they become incredibly angry. It's a very common response. They did not want to hear this, so they did what unrepentant, angry people do who want to persist in sin or continue in wrongdoing. They remove the source of light that's shining on their darkness. And that's why the Bible tells us here that Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. At this point, Herod decides, you know what? I've got to shut this guy up. I don't want to hear his voice of truth. Notice, nothing new. Cancel culture existed back in that day as well. Got to shut this guy up. We got to, we got to shut him down. We can't have him saying these things and making us feel guilty or uncomfortable or questioning our conduct or our error and speaking the truth. So they put John in prison. They make him look like the bad guy by putting him in prison and notice what's happening with John's life. He's being persecuted for speaking the truth. He's being persecuted for speaking on God's behalf and confronting sin. He spoke what was right. He honored God. He was actually lovingly trying to help people get out of error, show them their need to change, yet there's personal consequence of suffering as well as even personal loss in his life for speaking the truth. And I want you to take notice of that because that is a realistic pattern if and when, by the grace of God, we do the same. Jesus was very clear and spoke about being persecuted for righteousness' sake. You can't study the book of Acts, the early church, and not take notice that they were being persecuted for speaking the truth and standing for righteousness and honoring the word of God. This has happened all through human history and in the church whenever Christians seek to be salt and light. And folks, whenever we take a stand for righteousness, if you speak against error, if you speak out against sin, you will be persecuted more than likely in some way. And persecution describes some painful mistreatment that one suffers because of what 
is being spoken to you or spoken about you that may be painful, whether someone speaks something painful to you or they say something hurtful about you and your character, or maybe something painful is done to you circumstantially, or maybe in some way you may find that something is taken away from you and you will suffer loss personally as the result of standing for the truth and speaking what is right and honoring God over honoring man and calling out error. But the question becomes this, when those situations arise, like here with John the Baptist, what will you do? Because I tell you, as you faithfully seek to walk with the Lord, there will be God-ordained times when God desires for you to stake a stand and to speak the truth in a situation. It may be in your job, it may be in your own family, it may be in a ministry situation, whatever it may be, be aware though, just like Daniel and just like Isaiah and just like Jeremiah and just like John the Baptist and just like Paul the Apostle and just like Jesus, that if you choose to stand for righteousness and speak the truth, the reality is there will be consequences. And you should plan to suffer those consequences accordingly for speaking up for God. 1 Peter 3 says it this way, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Take that to heart. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, and always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that's in you, Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, listen, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. In other words, if we're going to suffer, let us suffer for doing what is good and righteous and holy, and it may be at times, notice, God's will to take a stand for righteousness and to suffer for that. And he says, that's a good way to suffer. Better to suffer for that than to suffer for doing something wrong. There is a good time and a good reason to suffer. Verse 19 goes on to say, therefore Herodias held this against John and she wanted to kill him, it says, but she could not. So again, Herodias, keep in mind, she's a direct participant in this immoral relationship being guilty of adultery herself, and apparently she took great offense to John the Baptist calling this out as sin. In fact, she appears to almost, according to the scripture, be the one that was the most angry in the situation. That she's incredibly incensed, the Holy Spirit tells us, she wanted John to be killed very early on in the process. She wanted him murdered, and the only reason he wasn't murdered was because she didn't have the power to bring that to pass. But she wanted him to be killed very early on. It's, again, it's amazing, is it not, to see how destructive and angry people can be when they're confronted with the truth. Man, when you confront someone with the truth who does not want to hear the truth and wants to continue in their error, man, you is like poking a lion in the eye. And I mean, she literally, take notice, she doesn't want to just, hey, let's just say nasty things about him on social media. No, she literally says... He needs to die. We should kill him. We should murder him. She literally wants him put to death 
because he exposed her sin and called her out with Herod for the error that they are in. Literally, the Bible says she wanted him to be killed, but she could not, verse 20 says, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and Herod protected him, no doubt by putting him in prison. And when he heard him, did many things, and he heard him gladly. Now, to me, this is interesting to see that though John boldly confronted Herod for his own personal sin and error, Herod, the Bible tells us, verse 20 here, apparently seemed to kind of somewhat respect John. There was a degree of reverence to where he even protected him from execution, though he's probably being pestered by Herodias, his wife, you need to kill him, you need to kill him, that he puts him in prison to kind of try and keep him locked away and preserved. See, Herod could not dismiss the reality that John was, as verse 20 says, a righteous, holy, and a godly man. And as much as Herod probably did not like hearing John, what he did realize is, you know, as much as I don't like that, the guy's kind of right. Oh, it makes me mad he's right. What I am doing is wrong. I know it's wrong in my heart. In my conscience, I know it's wrong. And I think he saw the commitment to God and God's word and holding to truth. And I think Herod was kind of somewhat subtly impressed by that. And he realized, man, this, this guy's got some courage to say something like that to me. And, and to just speak to me very directly like that and call me out. It says, Herod feared John and even heard him gladly. The idea is he was somewhat intimidated and he revered John because of the solid character that John had. And he respected it, whether he wanted to admit it or not. He even, it says, heard him gladly. That is, he almost kind of subtly enjoyed hearing John say the truth to him. There was something in a weird way that he was kind of like, man, as much as I don't like that, like, man, this, uh, you guys, man, he knows how to tell people the truth. And, and he almost kind of subtly enjoyed the whole process and look, let me say to you folks, it is amazing how even when a person is in total error and they may not want to admit their error, how oftentimes, though they may not say it outwardly, they have a ton of respect for godly people who have enough love and courage to tell them the truth. And they may not say it outwardly, but internally, there is a reverence and a degree of respect for godly influence and people who will stand for righteousness. And they may even to some degree, like Herod here, almost kind of subtly enjoy those who got enough courage to actually have a backbone to say something and to have enough backbone to be willing to risk consequence to challenge their error and notice, that's why even though Herodias probably was pestering, I think, Herod to kill John, Herod used his authority to keep John locked away in prison because he's thinking, at least I can keep him alive if I keep him tucked away in prison and keep him quiet. Well, verse 21 says, but then an opportune day came. Paul's right there. Then an opportune day came. Listen, when someone has evil intention in their heart and sinful desire lurking within themselves... The devil will always set up an opportune day. The devil will always set up an opportunity to act in selfishness and to do what's ruinous. If someone's got evil intention, the devil will gladly create an opportune situation. He'll wait until the way he can orchestrate, and it's almost like the devil just sets the stage 
to get things ready for that person who's got an unhealthy intention or a sinful desire, the devil says, no problem. I will find the right occasion. I will set the stage to get them to act on that sinful desire. I'll lay it out for them. And here now, an opportune day comes to pass. Verse 21 says that Herod, on that day when his birthday came, gave a feast for his nobles, his high officials, and the chief men of Galilee. So Herod, notice here, wanting to celebrate himself. It's his birthday. Yeah, I find that very interesting there. Shows you kind of where this guy's heart was at. He says, hey, let's have a feast on my birthday. Let's celebrate me. Let's celebrate me. And he invites all of his famous and powerful and influential friends, all of his political allies. It says the nobles and the high officials and the chief men. So again, these are all the movers and the shakers, the powerful people in the land. And they come together for a feast. And these feasts, we know historically, were characterized by things like heavy indulgence in alcohol and a festive occasion and drunkenness and immoral conduct and lots of music and festive dancing as well as sensual erotic dances being performed during the drinking and the festivities. Yet on this day, the anger and resentment of Herodias is an opportunity to now be indulged and she crosses a line that to me is utterly pollution, not only of her own life, but defiling her own child. Look what verse 22 says. And when Herodias's daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, and that term speaks of a young teenage girl. So you get the picture in your mind here. This isn't a 20-year-old girl. This is a young teenage girl. He watched her dance, and he said, ask me whatever you want, I will give it to you. And he swore an oath to her, saying, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Now, I want you to take notice what's going on here. Herodias, so corrupt, to me in this scene here, uses and abuses her own daughter like a human pawn for her own sick and disgusting ends. At some point in this drunken feast, Herodias, knowing her own husband's perversity, knowing her own husband's lust, persuades her young daughter to go into the party and dance in a sensual, erotic way in such a manner that she would stir up the passions and the enthusiasm of Herod together with all of his important friends knowing that more than likely this was a common practice that they would promise something when they were highly impressed with some performance. And so she plays all the cards in such a way and sends in her daughter to perform this sensual erotic dance for the lustful entertainment of her own husband and even more gross, the man who's actually her own stepfather in such a way to get, hopefully, some wish to be granted. And look, folks, this is sick and twisted, perverse and disgusted. This is family dysfunction on steroids. Family dysfunction on steroids. How evil when parents who are supposed to protect their children and care about the welfare and orchestrate protecting the welfare of their own children, that when a parent can be some so bent 
on obtaining their own selfish, sinful desire or so consumed and driven to have their way in a situation so much that they will actually subject their own son or daughter to harm just to get their selfish intention or to satisfy their own selfish and sinful indulgence. God help the parent who will answer to God someday for not only not being a good steward to protect their child's welfare from evil, but worse, some even crossing a line and using and abusing their own child's welfare just to get some sick gratification of their own sinful desire. Look, this morning, I am mature enough and not naive enough to know in a room like this that there are some of you here this morning that suffered such horrible consequences at the dysfunction of your own parents, who for some sick and twisted personal desire that they themselves had, rejected the truth in their own conscience and subjected you to harm and abused and harmed and hurt you in some way to pursue their own self-interest. And for that, I say to you, if no one else has, I'm very sorry. But let me say to you as well, Jesus said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and were thrown into the sea. Please, please know this morning if you have been wounded by a parent who's done something harmful to you in pursuit of their own selfish indulgence or sinful gratification or whatever it may be, please know this morning Jesus can heal you. Jesus can heal you. And you should go to Jesus and ask him to heal you. And Jesus can even give you a good life despite a very messy and even perhaps traumatic experience that may have happened in your upbringing. As Herod is in this, you know, inebriated condition and his own lusts are governing him and guiding him, he now makes these foolish, impulsive choices, making oaths to her, reiterating, whatever you want, he says to this young girl, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. So she went out, of course, and said to her mother, again, they knew how this would unfold, mother, what should I ask? And no hesitation, get the head, verse 24, of John the Baptist. And immediately, she came back in with haste to the king, knew that they shouldn't delay on something like this. He doesn't want to think about it. I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Murder John, give me his head on a platter. Verse 26 says, the king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her, and immediately the king sent an executioner, commanded his head to be brought, and he went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. Take notice, as this unfolds, Herod immediately feels regret for this very, very foolish oath that he just made instantaneously it says there that he felt sorry he felt grieved about what he just did yet verse 26 because of his oaths and the people who sat with him he didn't want to refuse her Herod's going through the typical struggle that a lot of people do he knew what he just declared was wrong and to do what he requested would make things way worse but now he's struggling 
because now in his conscience, he's wrestling because his pride is being challenged and he wants to keep an image and save face in front of his important friends. And he doesn't want to deal with the shame and the embarrassment. So again, he's got an important choice to make. Truth is testifying to his conscience. Herod, what are you doing? That was a stupid oath. Just push the pause button, slam on the brakes and say, you know what? That was a horrible oath. I cannot do that. That would be hideous and wrong. I spoke out of turn. I should never have done that. And he could have admitted his error and he could have stopped at an early stage in error from making a bad situation way, way worse. He could have just stopped it bad rather than letting it go to catastrophe. But Herod's struggling as a person does at times with wrestling with this. Do I turn the corner or do I just step on the accelerator in pride and just go straight forward? And sadly, he opts to yield to his pride to keep up an image and like a coward, instead of stopping things before it got way worse and turning the corner in the right direction, he placates his wife's own sinful desire instead of being a man with a backbone and challenging it and saying, that's wrong, and we are not doing that. And even worse, he placates his own child's wrong behavior and gives her her way, even though he knew what his child was asking was incredibly wrong. And Herod makes this horrific choice and tragically, we see the ending of John the Baptist's life as he's beheaded. And why? Because a man who was under the influence of alcohol made horrible decisions that led to horrific consequences. Because a man who was being governed and driven by his lustful passions cast restraint to the wind and ended up bringing horrible life consequences. And a man who was full of pride and more concerned about pleasing people, could not find the internal strength to say, you know what, I am a fool, and I have been wrong, and let me just blow the horn on myself right now and put a stop to this before this gets way, way worse. And instead, he pushed forward and brought a horrific outcome. And look, folks, sometimes if you find yourself in that deciding moment like Herod here, let me say to you, opt for humility don't press forward in pride. Opt in humility. God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Acknowledge the error. Stop it before it gets worse. Don't press forward. Humble yourself and do the right thing. Now, look how verse 29 concludes our section. It says, when his disciples heard, they come and take away his corpse and lay in a tomb. Now, let me just say as, as a culmination to this, John's disciples come, they respectfully take his body and they bury his body. And as much as that probably was so painful and sad, I imagine there had to be something about that too that was also incredibly inspiring. As his disciples realized their leader, as a great example, just took a stand for righteousness and spoke the truth and suffered horrible consequences because he was willing to stand for truth and to take a courageous stand. And I think there's something very inspiring when people take a courageous stand for what's right. Now, Billy Graham said this, great quote. Billy Graham said, courage is contagious. When a brave man takes a stand, the spines of others are stiffened. There are going to come times, and look, the generation we are living in, it necessitates it all the more, 
when we need to not be cowards and take a brave stand and be courageous for what is true and to honor God and have backbone to take a courageous stand. And in so doing, listen, we can stiffen the spines of other people around us to do the same.